Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Yes, how's it going? <laughs> Italy, Italy catching strays. He was, well, he was about to bring up the fascism. He was going to compare being chastised oh, for pooping about. on Mike. Uh, to being hung upside down and shot in the street. Oh, so he he's Mussolini in this situation. I've never, what, are you, literally, what are you talking about? I've never done that. We're Remember all when, uh, our minds. Wait, who was that? Was that Jim Carrey drew a painting of Mussolini being hanged and then Mussolini's granddaughter on Twitter called him a bastard? <laughs> Bastardo, or whatever. I remember yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Great moments in Twitter history. Things are happening uh, over on X, uh, but here it is a podcast, a literal roundtable podcast called Trilove. It's about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can find the showings schedule, merchandise, uh, clubs to be part of, and a lot of other cool ways to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. Certainly, I've uh, I've worried about um, uh, the problems, uh, the, uh, oh, the that you could almost say the sicknesses in our society and you can find Nailed me on it. Twitter at Nintendo So what? That's a phallic symbol. I know what that is. I'm Cody Narvison and you can find me on blue sky at Cody Narvison. Is it my turn next? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah well, what do you mean, dude? I'm Harry Mackin and I'm here to remind you that because all organized revolutionary movements have been thoroughly infiltrated by government agents, the successful acts of sabotage will be carried out by individual actors. Uh, and you can find me to discuss this further at Punish Take. My name is Aaron. Uh, you get to know me better and we'll shake hands. You can find me on back on Twitter, uh, Blue Sky at RB Please. You're finding a lot more juice, I think, on Twitter than on Blue Sky these days. I mean, like... I feel like everybody is, but I feel like your Twitter slash X such a large is, audience is up uh, from yeah. before you're, you're posting more often than you did before you were. I, off I need to make some sort of general like, hey, also follow me over here kind of yeah. post. But I mean, you've you already know. got it set as your username. Uh, follow him at rbplease.blue.sky or whatever those fucking URLs are. It's uh, the biggest problem with that website. To be honest, yeah. the biggest problem with that website. You, know, you don't have an invite code. code. Um, today's today's film uh, was a cult film collective screening. Follow the link in the show notes for other screenings put on by uh, that group. The next one that I saw is Winter Kills in January 2024. Anybody who hasn't seen that movie, it's pretty wild. A little bit less wild than today's movie, but pretty wild. Uh, I've also linked a number of pieces about this movie in the show notes, including two uh, on Parasphere, one by Trilove guest, uh, former guest Nick Cooey. So go ahead and check them out in the show notes. Um, but I will uh, bow out of the intro here to make room for the patented Aaron Grossman summer. Yes, indeed, folks. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I uh, have a cough. We'll see if I make it all all the way through this without uh, having to cough. Damn, but, the, uh, the boys are sick. I think Jason and I were just I, talking I about this. I think sick all week. I think everybody in the United Cody? States is sick. Cody, right can, now. Can, yeah. can, like can a, we get a check on Cody? Oh, wow. are you talking? Are you talking about the movie right now? <laughs> everybody in the U.S. is sick, man. It's true. Uh, the movie, by the way, is Hi Mom, nineteen seventy film, directed by Brian De Palma. 
Uh, it is kind of a partial follow-up, uh, if not, well, I guess it's kind of a sequel to De Palma's 1968 film Greetings. Uh, in Hi Mom and Greetings, uh, Robert De Niro uh, plays a character known as John Rubin. Uh, he's a Vietnam veteran, uh, at least in this film he is, an aspiring filmmaker um, who convinces a film producer to make a pornographic movie, uh, primarily by renting out just the, the shittiest flat in New York City you've ever seen. Um, and using a video camera to film the kind of numerous exploits, sexual and otherwise, but largely sexual, uh, of his neighbors. Uh, when the footage doesn't kind of exactly deliver the excitement that he, uh, he looks for, he goes to more extreme lengths to make the film, primarily by seducing his neighbor Judy, played by Jennifer Salt, um, and trying to get her to have sex with him. Um, he later joins uh, an experimental black theater troupe. Uh, he commits domestic terrorism. It's a very weird film. It's hard to describe. Um, but <clears throat> movie was, uh, largely kind of a, at least a financial success on release. Uh, De Palma would, would kind of largely not re return to this style of, of movie again, uh, kind of more generally. Um, I, I did see a bit of an interview with De Palma where he kind of blamed the general failure of the movie uh, on kind of maybe him trying out some other stuff, uh, certainly more successfully kind of later down the line. So it's, it kind of seemed like he maybe translated some of the financial uh, failure of this film to kind of being, it being a, like maybe an artistic failure. I don't know. Some uh, I'm, we have some deep De Palma heads uh, who, who we know and have been on the pod. So maybe we'll get some, uh, you know, input from them, but that's my take on Hi mom. There's not actually that much out there about this movie. Uh, it is yeah. a cult film. Uh, turns out for but, uh, many good yeah. reasons. Uh, you yes. use the term blunt or bluntly, I forget in your letterbox <clears throat> yes. review, uh, which didn't reveal way too much about how you actually feel about it more what you saw. Do you mind kicking us off with generally what you saw and how you felt about this movie? Sure. Uh, so I, I mean, what, what I kind of talked about in the, the letterbox review is it kind of reminds me a, a lot of specifically like, I mean, I, I reference like Frank Zappa's like, uh, like his more kind of, transgressive uh, uh, kind of satirical music uh, from the 60s and 70s or so. Um, I, it reminds me a lot of a lot of kind of satire from that time period, uh, which which was often um, quite problematic. And, and a lot of that hasn't aged well, but often like very, very direct and blunt and maybe not all well-meaning per se, but, but kind of in its bluntness, maybe being a little more obvious about the, the critical, uh, kind of aims that, that it's kind of taking. I think that this film it's, is it's sort of like the, even the worst, uh, sort of like racial politics of the 1970s are somehow better than the racial politics that we have right now, it, 50 years yeah, later. It's, it's like, how did that happen, man? Like not, not entirely like folded into the mainstream yet. And so like, a lot of, not that there weren't any mainstream things like tackling this, there were, but like, you know, th there were a lot of, I, I think that there's like a larger conversation to be had about like transgressive art in general. Uh, in, in like, I, in my kind of like general feeling about a lot of this stuff, uh, I guess just to, just to kick, <laughs> kick it off with this one is I, I think that like, you know, uh, uh, I do think that there is kind of a, a value in, just kind of general transgressiveness, to be honest. And I think that art that is transgress transgressive in this manner kind of often is viewed as aging badly because it, I think it is, it is very easy to kind of forget the 
kind of political, national, cultural climate that kind of uh, culminates in in someone making something artistic that is just um, like often pointed. This film is certainly pointed, but often even more than that, just kind of like a general you know middle finger. And I'm not saying that that stuff is like often the most nuanced or subtle. It's like punk rock, right? It's well like considered. the Dead Kennedys, right? Where it's like you know, it, yes. it's just sort of nihilistic, and it, it's like, well, it's it's leftist. It's identifiably leftist, but more than that, it's just sort of like really caustic and angry or, and sort of yes. immature, or like at the, <laughs> at the risk of like. Uh, having a bunch of conversations that I definitely don't want to have. It, like early Eminem is kind of that way where like, you know, you, you just come off like a dweeb, like uh, saying anything positive about Eminem in, in 2023. But like, you know, um, I think that like the, the kind of late nineties, early two thousands was a time in America that was very much in some ways, like around 1970 uh, when, you know, there was such a a kind of oppressive atmosphere of uh, kind of right wing politics, uh, specifically around nine eleven and whatnot, but also just like general uh, conservative um, messaging and like political power around like censorship and things of that nature. And like, it's very easy when you're out of the weeds to kind of say like, oh, that shit didn't age well. And like, yeah, it didn't age well, but like the context is is different. Um, so I'm like always a little bit in that stuff's corner, even if a lot of it kind of sucks and is not very good. You know what I mean? Um, I, but I think high mom is good. Uh, so, so I don't think high mom necessarily falls into that trap, but like this movie is like very transgressive, uh, still feels quite hard to watch at times, uh, uh, in a way that like in the middle, I didn't know if it was like going to stick the landing. I think it generally does. There's, there's maybe some qualms to have with bits here and there, but like, I, I liked watching this film. I, I missed. Uh, I, I missed. I, I would have liked to seen this in a theater with other people. I think. Yeah, yeah. It was. We managed to get to see it. Myself and Cody and uh, a frequent guest of the pod, brother of the pod, Seth Zarati, got to see it as part of a cult film collective screening, pre-screening of the thirty-five millimeter print. I think it was struck in. I forget when he said Cody. It was struck more recently than the origin of the film. Um, but it was truly a, like. I think a couple of people there had seen it before. It was, uh, you know, obviously took most people by surprise quiet at the most <laughs> quiet audience parts you can imagine um but for my part like couldn't have described it better when i said when you said it's like uh, it's transgressive and some and pretty messy and occasionally pretty clunky but like effective i find it effective like i've never seen anything like this so it's hard for me to say like it is like i, I, I like to have little ladder rungs that i can say it's like this or it uses this piece of its narrative or it's filmmaking like this it can't really do that in a lot of cases it like um it, it's it's effective at what it does but like what it does moves so frequently and like its target changes it's like scope changes so frequently like at least three distinct times throughout the course of an 87 minute movie that it's hard to say like it is effective and cohesive i don't think i don't think it's truly that like comprehensive or like that it speaks to or that it's a great grand statement i think i'm repeating some more stuff from your letterbox review but that it's a statement on anything that it's like you know all encompassing it is many many ideas sort of scattered and shot at you know the screen at the audience so to speak it it is like it flits from the, and I haven't seen as much De Palma as some of the people on this podcast right now, but it flits from uh, De Palma's like, you know, audience implicating uh, voyeurism thing, cinema verite, but like, what does cinema verite mean when, you know, we're presenting narrative, that kind of thing. It flits from that to like, uh, almost like a sorry, not sorry, mea culpa on, uh, you know, the on post-civil rights era um, uh, race relations in America to just like, 
a strange nihilistic ending. Um, it doesn't really like stick with too many things too long to like have a cohesive from beginning to end of an idea, just sort of like throwing them there and what, you know, the audience based on how they're watching the movie will respond. However, they respond, which is like you said, Aaron, very important context here, um, for who's, who's watching it and when. I, I, I too came away like really enjoying having seen it, but, uh, it, like it is not what I would consider like a fully like realized thing, I guess way more interesting for not being way more interesting for being like experimental at its core, uh, at, at like in the most basic ways. Um, but not a thing that I could say like, yeah, that, that is a cohesive one big piece of a movie that is sort of like speaking to a thing. It is taking on a lot of different ideas. Uh, it, it seems very, um, put together from many different parts uh and none of them like necessarily half-assed without purpose there's a lot i think i'm trying to bury under other conversation points because they'll be more rich in the moment uh, as we get to them but i saw harry hand excuse me harry's hand up while i was talking first so i'll toss to harry for his thoughts too yeah i don't necessarily disagree with you i found it a little bit more cohesive maybe just because and, and i'm by no means a De Palma expert but this is a really fascinating movie to watch in conversation with his filmography the way you alluded to a little bit, Jason. It kind of creates this meta layer on top of the transgression that Aaron was talking about where um, I kind of read this movie a little bit as like a semi-autobiographical shit take on what it's like to make movies in 1970, what it's like to try to make art, what it's try like to try to make profitable art at the same time. I think that this is a, this is a movie that's sort of... As, I think that the reason why it works, even through its transgression for me, is that I think it has a real sense of humor about the people making it. Um, for instance, the entire middle third of this movie is the Be Black Baby quote-unquote performance, which is basically where a, a bunch of black people led by a white guy uh, capture, kidnap a bunch of New York white liberals who uh, say that they are very woke when it comes to the black experience and just sort of torture and uh, rape one of them uh, – Sorry, trigger warning. Um, and it, it, the whole idea is sort of like, do you get it? Like, that's how it is to be black in America. And then they let them out. And of course, the, the, um, brick joke, the, the shit take at the end is all the liberals loved it. And they're like, wow, like that was amazing. And like, to me, that, that was a little obvious. Like, I, I really saw it all coming. But on top of everything else, like, De Palma is the white director at the heart of this movie, right? The guy who's played by beef from uh, Phantom of the Paradise, right? Like the entire time oh, that wow. we're watching this um, sequence, we're watching it through a camera lens, right? Like there's a handheld that is following through this scene. We're supposed to understand that we are looking at this through a camera and we're supposed to be thinking about it in terms of like, oh, I get it. This is a white movie director making a movie about a white playwright who wanted to yeah. make a play about the black experience for white people. So, like, I think that that meta layer, that commentary on top of it, especially in conversation with De Palma's filmography, which is so much about the struggles to make genuine art when there is no such thing as a genuine self in the like post artistic world, um, is is really fascinating. It reminded me a lot of um, we just watched Blair Witch right for this and 
like my favorite parts of Buyer Witch are always all about these characters struggling with the fact that they're on camera and how that creates this sort of like layer of inauthenticity inauth- over everything, even their authentic experiences, right? They are so self-conscious in every moment of that movie that even when they're terrified for their lives, they are deeply, intimately aware that they are being perceived by a camera lens. That's how everyone in this movie feels to me. It feels like, and I, I think that like Robert De Niro's character is a perfect stand-in for that, right? Because he is a Vietnam veteran, but the movie treats him like kind of a space alien, right? Who, who's reintegrating into society and trying to figure out like, oh, I like I left for Vietnam and when I came back, I found all this crazy shit going on. And like, what am I, what am I going to do now, right? Like, what am I going to do to like make my artistic statement, to make my social statement? And he becomes this sort of like very strange, dejected, uh, nihilistic leftist revolutionary sort of by accident, right? Just by following the thread. And I kind of think that that above and beyond sort of all of the other transgressive elements and, and parodic elements of this movie is kind of what it's about, right? It's about like, hey, like, what, is it, what does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to try to hmm. make art that says something? When we have this like world where like nobody is actually authentic, everybody is uh, self-conscious, everybody is refracted through uh, media, everybody is trying to say something, make something. And, uh, what does that like look like? Right. And, and like, what does it mean in particular, like with regard to sort of like trying to do something good, right. When, when your sort of viewpoint is, is forever compromised in that way. Right. So it's, it's sort of a, it's a movie about the the frustration that's also making fun of it. Right. I think it's, it's a lot of De Palma being like, I really want to do something good with art, but like, I'm also a white director and I understand what that means. And I understand what it means to make like white media for white people about black people. And like, I, I think I, I don't, I don't know if it if it totally comes together for me, right? But like I think I think that there's a lot happening here and there's a lot of anger there, right? Like I I particularly like the scene that immediately follows the Be Black Baby sequence where the black people decide, well, we didn't make our statement through this performance, so we're just gonna take direct action. We're just gonna literally go into white people's apartments and try to oust them from it. And they find out that the white people have been waiting for that all along and they have Gatling guns and they get blown away. Right. And Fred it's, Hampton it's, was literally murdered like in sixty nine. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I I don't, right. I don't know the production of this film. It seemed maybe that's a historical, but like that's such like an obvious. Yes. A lot of Black Panthers were getting uh, killed by the, yes, the, the FBI a- and CIA and whatnot. So could be a number of yeah. them, unfortunately. But like it seems very. Oh, you know, De Palma. Yeah, he was all of, he was across yes. that for sure. Yeah. Right. And it, it like that's just to, to show, right, is that like, oh, like the, the minute that you break away from it's like it's it's OK to make this media uh, when it when it's all performance and when it's all be the be black baby performance. Right. But like the second you try to bring it to real life, the second you try to bring it into their homes, they've got Gatling guns <laughs> and they're in there waiting for you. Right. And I think that a lot of this movie is involved with sort of that frustration about like, hey, like, how am I supposed to do anything that's good or even sort of commercially successful when I have all of these needs and all of these artistic pretensions? But also like my art is fundamentally being um interpreted by people in power and it is for the consumption of people in power right i think that there's a lot of that happening here yeah i would agree with that uh, and i agree with a lot of the points y'all have, have brought up um i enjoyed watching this movie uh I, I i think i quite like it and 
we've had a, a number of these um type or like the thing that i'm about to describe i feel like we've had uh, at least a handful of these on the show where we cover movies where it's so clear that the filmmaker uh, filmmakers in various positions they have um like they they have a couple uh ideas or one big idea that they want to put on screen um you know without really knowing like if they're going to get another opportunity to do so and i guess with the palma knowing that this is you know, one of his first features like that kind of checks out and it also I don't want to say like it, it, it in totality explains, but it maybe plays into the decision to, um, I mean, he's probably already, uh, always rather been interested in like it, leaning into, into the transgressive, but if anything else kind of going that route allows you to, to get noticed. Um, and, and it seems like he definitely like wanted to, to rile up, uh, you know, the first of many instances of him wanting to maybe Just rile like up his audience right? a little bit. Like arguably this character is all about getting noticed, right? Like that's kind of what he's all about is the high mom thing, right? He wants to be on TV. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And you know, the, the two threads, um, you know, if you want to think about this movie in its sort of two interweaving halves, there is, um, a, a guy, have we even, said his name yet john rubin played by or no aaron probably had it in the, in the intro of course um, i did i, I meant like it, i meant credit points no, no no i i meant i meant in the Get i meant ass. in the i meant in the discu- discussion proper but yeah i didn't want to, to oh, sure. inadvertently yes. um shrug off uh the the patented aaron grossman summary um but yeah robbie yes, d indeed, folks yes indeed folks uh yes in robert de niro f- folks he's in hmm. he was in this movie um yeah and he's he's good he, he is good. Um, he's charming. He, I, I, you got to feel I, like he, he kind of knows the game. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I thought that his character was a joke about Taxi Driver until I realized Taxi Driver came out six years after this movie was made. Right. Yeah, it's uh, funny yeah. how that works, but it's 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 all it's all related though, and it is he, you know, him being sort of a stand-in for somebody who, you know, it's the the peeping Tom uh, sensibility. It's the rear window type of sensibility. Sensibility. It's De Palma playing into and with voyeurism uh and you take a step back that like that is and it's already been remarked upon by y'all but that is like an interest of his not just um like being uh you the spectator uh you juxtapose against the spectacle and how those things come to like the wall breaks down at some point um and it is a little bit different here because the the melding of sort of uh, you know, the, the documentary type sensibilities with the quote unquote real experience. Um, the, the setup is a little differently to where it's, you know, the, you as, you know, I guess us as the audience feel a little bit more brought into into the scene just because the whole be black baby um stage play type thing performance within a performance um where it's usually like you know a, a john travolta in in blowout or whoever the other protagonists in our protagonists are in the de palma films that i'm forgetting where it is you know there's you know a, a world that we we want to step into we want to understand we want to capture within the frame and then oopsie doodle now we're within the frame now we're wrapped up in this whole big sweeping adventure and um you know the be black be black baby um you know sketch kind of being a jumping off point for that where it is you know speaking to my maybe just my experience maybe else's uh, as well but like failing to see kind of the disconnect until until i think you know without really knowing anything about de palma's um politics or like how you know how much he he wanted to ramp up the transgressive um stylings of this you know even without any of that it is like a, a tantalizing sort of way into his sort of examination of the 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 voyeur 
you know, the voyeurism um, and just like seeing the world, not being a part of it. And then just like, well, you, you the, those things got to come to a head at some point. So that in itself, I like the, all of this, it, it felt very raw, but like kind of logical with us having the benefit of knowing what sort of, or I guess, you know, some of us uh, rather, I don't know. I feel like I've seen a lot of De Palma movies and I don't remember quite all of them, but this feels like the, the blueprint feels like it's here. Uh, Harry, maybe you feel differently about that, but just, you know, w- with us, yeah, I don't know, having having this as like a, a patient zero or a patient one or two. I know it's not literally, literally his first feature. Um, that's, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a jigsaw piece that felt like it it fit to me. Um, oh, yeah, Harry, dude. If that makes sense. I And I mean, like, if you don't like this movie and you do like De Palma, maybe there's, maybe you feel differently. To me, this felt like a fucking Rosetta Stone for understanding his entire career. Really? Like, really? Especially in a lot of ways to like Robert De Niro's character, coming back from Vietnam, having his sort of sense of reality destroyed, and then the irony of finding that everyone else's sense of reality is equally destroyed, right? It's like, this is a guy trying to make cinema verite, and he finds out that there's no such thing as verite anymore, essentially. Like, he's trying to create these peep shows to to capture authenticity, and then it turns out everybody is performing just as hard as he is all the time. Like, he tries to seduce this woman, and he fails basically because she's ready to be seduced to an extent that he wasn't prepared for for, right? They end up having this this marital life and he's pretending, but she is also pretending and it's almost just like frustrating to him that he that she is pretending as hard as he is and seems to understand that she's pretending as well. Um, these these black people are trying to really get across. They're trying to like cross over the boundaries into and transgress on somebody's reality. Right? They're trying to show white people like, no, you don't understand. Like, come out of yourselves and understand what it is like to be black and. The whole time they're like, oh no, that was, that was incredible theater, right? It's like there, there is no transgressing on somebody else's reality. There is no teaching anything because the identity performance is so all consuming that there is no way to sort of like get through to it. Honestly, I, I read the end of this movie as like almost a weird artistic statement by De Palma to be like, well, what do I do with this? And the, the secret is like, well, I'm going to blend in. I'm going to be a Hollywood filmmaker and then I'm going to plant the bomb. And the bomb is hi mom, right? Like the bomb is like, hey, like I just made this movie that made you think about all of these things. And like maybe that's my way of breaking through and actually like making myself known and making these ideas known to you in a world where like media is so all consuming that that it all becomes media right like it's we're capable of of watching each other the same way we watch tv shows the same way we watch um movies right like i to the to the point where like somebody can be up in your face uh painting you black and torturing you and you're like yeah but like this is part of the show Right. Uh, It's like, how do how do we break out of that? How do we get people out of the show and into reality? And I think that this movie is is kind of about De Palma struggling with that. And I think a lot of his movies are. I think a lot of his movies are like, hey, how do I make movies that like make people feel something when like people always feel like they're in movies because I'm Brian De Palma and I'm always in a movie. You know what I mean? I don't know. I think, and mm-hmm. I think that like it's so fascinating to track that with like the fact that he is so obsessed with voyeurism and so obsessed with movies about movies and so obsessed with like making the craft and the uh, formal qualities of the films manifest in his films, right? Like we're always looking through cameras at other people. We're always looking at people looking at us. And like there, there is something there about sort of like, how do I like reach somebody? 
right? Like, how do I like get through to somebody when like I know that like they are consumed with me perceiving them perceiving me? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's it's a really interesting exchange happening. Yeah, I don't know that I I agree necessarily about um, Judy in specific and sort of her uh, motivate like her. You didn't use the word posturing, but like he knows that she's faking it kind of thing. I don't know that I see that necessarily in in like their relationship, but it is like she is just another domino to fall in his pursuit of. And that was the big question mark to me while watching the movie was what is he like going? What is he trying to achieve? What is he what is he going for? The concept you brought up, Harry, was like a pursuit of authenticity. Uh, Like if I I haven't seen greetings, but it's a continuation of like, he's coming back from war. He's, you know, sort of disenfranchised, a disenchanted youth who is life has been changed forever by, you know, the horrors of war kind of thing. I have no idea what the backstories are, how it's really supposed to impact this narrative necessarily. But um, that is like, I think that's a a good discussion point. And I'd like to know what Harry, excuse me, Aaron and, and Cody both think too, is like, is that is authenticity in like any sense of the term, what John Rubin is pursuing, or is he just like flitting from one thing to have his impact on the world to uh, see and be seen sort of in a very De Palma way? Uh, is there any, like what, what, where, how does that strike you? That, that concept of, of authenticity? Yeah. I think if there's like one area where I might disagree with like Harry's read of the film, which I, I think it's, it's pretty, pretty solid, I think. And also like, I do get like what you said about it being kind of like a Rosetta stone. Like I do think that like that this film um, and again, I'm not like an expert on his filmography, but it feels like he kind of like took the general sentiments of this film and decided to like kind of dive deeper into that, but like kind of ditched the form and tone entirely a little bit. Mm. Uh, maybe not. The oh form, yeah. I, still, I mean, he's still he does voyeuristic funny and whatever, things but like and he's the, very voyeuristic, but he, he went on to make like not this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, he fucking made mission impossible. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's pretty hard to like one-to-one those for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but I would say that like, I, I don't, uh, view De Niro's character as, as being authentic kind of at all. I think that he's like, I don't think it's supposed to, I don't think we're supposed to read him as some sort of like twisted sociopath so much as just like a very scummy comic character who, yeah, who kind is of a kind of, yeah. he's, he's yeah, picaresque, right? He, he's like fucking, um, yeah. what's, what's the he name of the, stumbles into, yeah. it's like a mad magazine, like, uh, uh, like cartoon, you know what I mean? More than it is kind of anything else like it. The, this movie also does have like elements of, of that sort of, uh, a parody and satire to it. Um, which is why I think like the first third of this specifically, like I find so funny. Um, it's, it's just, it's very humor. I think the dialogue's great. I think that like the, mm-hmm. the, it's very fast talking in, in a way that is, is interesting. Um, but no, I, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't read his character that way. Um, I also think that, that generally De Palma is someone that, um, is kind of more concerned with like, at least in my opinion, use it using his characters kind of as like tools in order to get across a larger point. Uh, there was a, a, a conversation with him and Scorsese that I watched kind of leading up to watching this film. Uh, Cause I knew we'd be doing it um, where, where they kind of contrast their styles where Scorsese is a director who is so concerned with, with uh, performances, with scenes that really dive into characters motivations. Right. Um, and, and like, that's kind of how he builds his films is from that character basis where De Palma is like, not really concerned with that for the most part, he has films that are, but for the most part, he's like, he uses them to do a thing. And 
they're kind of tools for him. And I think that De Niro's character kind of works in that regard where, where De Niro being who he is, kind of the, just the shitty scumbag kind of blundering from one moment to the next allows De Palma to kind of, you know, uh, uh, bring new subjects up and to, to kind of have this film so segmented into different parts where, you know, he's making his film, he, you know, sells his camera, he buys the TV, bomb blows up a building and whatnot. Great, so. great turn, by the way. He sells a camera to buy a TV, <laughs> even, even gets some title <laughs> card, you know, it's very funny. With the, with the weirdest subtitles of all time, just <laughs> it's so on the screen. Funny. <laughs> yeah. Also uh, him shooting, him shooting that TV got, got a big, lot of oh, yeah. dark, dark moment in the film, but big laugh out of old Aaron uh, for that one. <laughs> Sorry, Cody. Oh, come on. No, no, you're, I mean, you're younger than me. Can't be that old. You're regular aged, Aaron. Um, we can both be old. That's not, that's not, hey, bud. Listen. I think we can all just be old. I don't, uh... Is it, uh, wow, too, too big of a conversation for this podcast episode about hi, mom. Um, no, I think the question of authenticity is genuinely fascinating because I, I think, to your point, Aaron, um, John Rubin is definitely the, like, blundering from scene to scene is, is definitely out, but he's also, like, he's shown to be a very, like, calculating person, and there is, I, I, like, I, I think a sense of earnestness, um, or maybe authenticity that you could glean from him. And at this point, I feel like I'm just, I'm thinking about this out loud, and I think the pieces are here from this conversation up to this point to, like, kind of construct how I find myself to feel about it, but I, I do not, doubt that john rubin is a character who like is at least searching for authenticity um i think at some point along the way he find and it might even be like off screen or just like between the scenes where like we're, we're floating from his main arc to the b black baby and just like it kind of you know we cut and he like there's this new version of him that we're seeing where i think to some extent he might feel more alive like watching everybody else between the freight even when he's falling asleep at the wheel um you know the figurative wheel the camera being the wheel falling asleep at the camera like watching other people um inhabiting other lives that aren't his his and then finding himself within that apartment um you know with with i don't know i don't want to say within the frame because he's not i don't know he he thinks he's on camera at one point and then it turns out the camera like dipped forward uh and he wasn't anymore but like i think the like thinking about this as his arc is finding out like his mis misconceptions about what the world is or like what he's returning to. Maybe there is a lack of authenticity. Um, you know, it's something he thought was a bit is just like how everybody lives now. That's um, no, that's exactly where I was going with it. Right. Like, yeah. That's, no, oh, I take really it. Take it. No, that. I've, is that, yeah, no, I've um, exhausted that. So yeah, please go for it. I really appreciate this clarification, right? Because like, I should be clear. I don't read John as himself, this sort of like earnest babe in the woods. I think he came back from Vietnam. He wanted to be like this, sort of dejected dirty capitalist he's like i've got my twisted mind from being warped by vietnam hmm. and now i'm going to use my twisted uh like worldview to to capitalize off it by showing society so sides of themselves they don't want to see and then he is he is con confounded at every turn by a complete lack of authenticity by everybody else it's like he thinks he's had this sort of transformative experience that has taught him like the the true sort of like darkness at the heart of humanity and he returns to a world where the joke is that everybody thinks it's a joke too like everybody sees the world the way he does right and and so his perspective is not as 
unique as he thought it was. And so he's constantly on this quest to find or make this sort of like surprise um, authenticity. And instead, he gets these people who are totally, totally inured to it, who are totally desensitized from everything, right? I mean, there's that one great scene where the um, the black uh, actors are trying to get people at the newsstand to come to their show um, by trying to convince them that they don't know what it's like to be black in America. And the newsstand people repeatedly say like, oh, no, no, we totally understand all of that. And in the background, somebody shoots uh, one of the newsstand people to death to steal like a newspaper and just runs off and it doesn't even interrupt their conversation. It's right? It's like, it's like, yeah, it's just like a perfect sort of like little joke about the entirety of this thing. So like, I think to me, like the De, um, De Niro character is sort of like very much a picaresque, like Aaron was saying. And I think that the joke of the movie is that like everybody as is as twisted and inauthentic and desensitized as he is, right? Like they all think that it's all just a show and they're all just sort of bemused by the unreality of it all. And meanwhile, he is trying to sort of show reality back to them in order to profit off of it. And he can't do it because he can't get through to anybody because it's all part of the show, right? And it, there's this sort of like this hilarious, ironic frustration of like, how do I like, how do you get through to these people? And I mean, like, obviously, mm -hmm. in my opinion, it's De Palma talking to the audience, right? Or it's De Palma saying something about being white and liberal in New York in the 1970s, where it's like, hey, like, this is real for some people. I know it's not really real for you because you're in your high rise or whatever, but like, it, but, but he himself is one of the people that it's not real for, right? Which is why he's making movies, which is why he's trying to like, <laughs> trying to find something that he knows he can never find because he's him and the world is what it is. And I, I think that that's really funny in a weird, dark way. I, I know it's not like uh, some sort of revelation or like, it's not the, obviously the, the first piece of media, even by like a, a, a white director to do this, but like, is there a more timeless <laughs> criticism of white liberals than than that scene where they're all standing around and they're all talking about like oh, i don't care if you're yellow or, or green or blue like yeah. that that we marched that holds in harlem up. that's an eternal <laughs> unfortunately that's just an eternal criticism that will always be uh accurate and funny uh when it comes up is just the well-meaning uh white uh, dipshit liberal uh yeah very funny um they look I, like I, they I think the, the, the yes the main the main thing I think that's that's kind of stopping me from going with you on this, Harry, is I think that we don't. Um, I th maybe maybe I need to see greetings. In fact, I really want to see greetings because I really love this movie. Um, uh, so so hope hopefully greetings is kind of more of this, maybe with a different kind of aim to it. Um, but I don't. Th there's not like too much there, kind of until the end, <clears throat> um, about De Niro's. Uh, or John Rubin's um, service in Vietnam, I think. And I think that like that tied with kind of a lack of like reaction from him to the things happening, kind of like make any sort of question around like motivations, like kind of murky in a weird way. And like, to me, not even like murky, Almost but like kind of not even a point. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like, like totally not even it's, it's, I mean, it, it does kind of tie back to the idea of like character in this film where like, I don't think De Palma considered for a second, like any of Ruben's like character traits outside of like literally what is on the screen I would to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I, mean? I was just um, trying to characterize the fact that like, he's not, yes. you're right. He's a vessel, right? He's a picaresque vessel. We're supposed to sort of follow him through this crazy world 
and get a sense of like the way the world is, not necessarily the way he is, except as a reflection of the world. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, I suppose, in that same conversation about like the what he's in pursuit of, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if indeed what John Rubin is, uh, like what he's there for, if he is just vessel for the ideas, like I accept that if he is like a sort of stand in for the effect of a filmmaker on like things on ideas being tackled, uh, on like, uh, like why somebody like De Palma would make this movie. I think the scenes that come to me, uh, excuse me, like the, the, obviously the scene that plays most closely with that idea is the, um, is the middle, like third of this movie. And it is like maybe 25, 30 minutes of an 87 minute movie dedicated to the be black baby scene, uh, which we described in some detail, but a group of black theater performers invites a group of white audience members to, uh, sort of join an interactive theater piece about what it's like to be black. They allow the white audience members to like feel literally their bodies and clothes and their hair, uh, and like comment on it in whatever way. It's exactly as uncomfortable and cringeworthy as you'd imagine, especially in 2023. Uh, and then it sort of goes into a, a very like c- comedic and serious passage in, uh, in a, a stairwell where, um, the, uh, black performers start sort of haranguing and abusing, uh, the various, uh, white audience members. They end up putting shoe polish on the white members' faces. They end up painting their own faces white uh, and assaulting them in various ways, literally like beating up a guy at the bottom of the stairs. Um, another woman is sexually assaulted. Again, we'll put a content warning at the top. Uh, and eventually, John Rubin's character comes in as the cop to, quote unquote, make things right. And he, of course, goes directly for the people whose faces are painted black. They are the ones who are black, black to the world. That is what it's like to be black. It is like... I watch parts of movies like that and I say, what are we trying to get here? What are we like putting before the audience? What are we trying to show by making this part of a movie and by framing it the way we have? And I really, after thinking about it, we've had longer than usual to to think about this movie. And I don't think I've gotten any close, any further than this is like, I really like the framing we've put around it here today. uh, Thanks to uh, my, my podcast co-hosts. I think that De Palma in saying, and Harry, you just said a minute ago, uh, that it's like this, this, the, you know, this oppression, this, uh, this, uh, the, the, um, uh, injustices that black people face, especially in America, especially in 1970 and, and beyond, uh, it's real for someone. Uh, it might not be real for you audience member. Uh, but I think he's also saying it's, it's certainly not real for me either. Uh, but I'm going to, in absence of like any form of, uh, fidelity with which I can portray that, I'm just going to like bring it to its most extreme version to its most extreme realization. It's going to like, I can paint this vivid picture of the extremities of that idea that, you know, black people would, uh, would sort of force a, a black identity on white audience members to show them what they're really like posturing at with a sort of a, a, a necessarily like woke, uh, performative. Uh, I don't care if you're black, queen, green, uh, white, blue, whatever. Um, like, he can only do it in that bluntest way possible. And so he, De Palma, as a filmmaker, is saying, like, I am going to just approach it as in the bluntest way possible. I'm going to take this cudgel of uh, of a movie. I'm going to shoot it on eight millimeter in a fucking hallway with only natural sound and no real editing. Just 
bam, this big wad mess of a scene that is going to have various tent poles, but mostly seems, I don't know if it was certainly, but mostly seems improv. And I think that works on a few levels, obviously being like, it's going to be unfiltered and unedited. So it's just going to feel uncomfortable in real time. Um, and it's like, it's playing alongside that, uh, you know, the audience of the movie is sort of being implied to be like the audience of the interactive play. Um, and there's no way that they could truly be brought into that experience of the other specifically along such a stark racial line in 1970 as black and white. And so you're not going to be able to truly understand. It's going to appear awful. It's going to appear like reprehensible and terrible and terrifying. And the theater is going to be silent for every moment of this entire, and I promise it was, even if it was just like 15 of us in this theater. Uh, But that is what I'm going to leave you with. I'm not going to like help you to any greater like, uh, understandings. I'm not going to like feed you ideas about what you're supposed to feel about this scene. Simply sit with it. I, I think, and I mean that I, I, that that's the best I, I can uh, sort of like come up with from my own screening. That was the way that John uh, uh, proposed it when he was talking with us about it. John Moret was proposed it before he was screening it for us. And afterward he said, there's just like, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting emails about this movie because it really is just a, like a sit with it type middle act uh that you will make you like the first third very comedic uh black comedy the the middle sort of you're trying to look for that continuance of that tone of that serious comedy theme and it does not truly come through until that whole sequence is is ended and broken and of course all the white people still like with shoe polish all over their faces are saying like i'm gonna tell all my friends it was great uh you know it was wonderful you should all come it i don't get a whole lot of didacticism from that segment because the the thing that drove it i'm going to assume is we would like to portray somehow the hypocrisy of trying to understand the black experience as a white person and sort of like your uh, generally like the white public's intent to or like empathy for that idea is it, it goes nowhere it is meaningless it is performative at best and here is a stark horrible uh you know sort of like realization of that a showing of that that will not lead to any greater nuance. Like I can't Brian De Palma as a white guy can't give you real nuance about that because I am not black. I have not had that experience and I never will have that experience. Therefore here's, you know, like a, a, a sort of unnatural endpoint to it. Um, was there any, like, I guess, does that make sense at all? Yeah. Are, I mean, I think that, to that? The, the reason I disagree with that is because I, I think you've really well described the effect if he had released that half hour of this movie in abstraction as like a short film. I, I think that like mm. I, I think that like this is a movie about his frustrations that he can't do that or that it wouldn't have any effect. Right. I think he's saying like, look, there there is no way to break through the like callousness of a white liberal audience with art, because no matter what I do, no matter how transgressive I try to be, this is how it's going to be received. So that's why I have to make movies like Hi Mom instead, right? Because it's like, I would love to make some sort of transgressive cinema that would like really like break through. But like, as we can see, like, this is what it would be, how it would be received. (laughs) Like I would get accolades for that shit, right? Like, like I would vote for Obama a third time if I could, like the fucking people from get out would love that shit. They would love that movie. And, and like, that's basically, and then in the very next scene, it's like, but when it becomes real, uh, they've got Gatling guns right behind their doors and they yeah. can just blow the black people away. Um, and so I think that like, I think that this is a movie very much about the frustration that he can't do something like that. Right. That like, Oh, like I like, I, 
like even my ability, I don't have the ability to make something like that. I have to put like all of this other movie around it in order to demonstrate how I don't have the ability to do something like that and to sort of undermine the like to, to sort of poke fun at the idea that doing that would accomplish something. Right. It's, it's like, he's, he's really doing a shit take on like a white dude's ability to make art about the black experience um, as a white filmmaker. Right. Like he's like, Oh, like it would be cool if I could do that, but like, this is what it would accomplish. Right. Like it would be this stupid, silly movie that I'm making right now. Um, and like, I, I think that like they're the, the length of that sequence and how horrible and um, like, like really terrifying it is is like a manifestation a formal manifestation of that frustration right it's like but like i'm gonna give it to you right it's like we're not gonna abstract this idea like you're going to get it in its full ugly form and the fact that it still doesn't resonate the fact that it still doesn't punch through is what he's so frustrated about in my in my opinion i uh i maybe have i'm not gonna say that's like wrong in my eyes. I'm kind of, I, I didn't read as much uh, meta commentary, I would say into um, that, that scene. And, and it's hard to argue that it's not in this movie, like at all, I think certainly, especially given like the, the kind of the start and end of the film. Um, but I think that like, you know, the start and end of the film are like also much more largely like not as concerned with race in a way that makes it, I think easier to kind of, square with a lot of the other De Palma films I've seen, which like generally don't tackle that subject much. Yeah, uh, some of them have anyway, yeah. it's here and there, right? Like I think like the, the, the bit that's like, again, I like, I don't like disagree with it. Cause like, I don't know, like I would, I would love to, and maybe there is some sort of stuff out there, but like I really Googled and I, I could not find much. Uh, so maybe I need to like buy a book or a uh, documentary or something, but like, uh, you know, I, I, don't have a great impression on like just what De Palma was like during this time period, uh, his thoughts on this kind of stuff. Um, and I wish I knew more of that in a way that I think that like a lot of filmmakers from that time period who were, were, were kind of lumped alongside him fairly and unfairly. But I think someone like George Lucas, like it's pretty easy to fucking tell what George Lucas's uh, political sympathies were, you know, back in, in the seventies and whatnot. Right. At De Palma, I don't have an idea of that. And like, just from looking around, I couldn't really find it. So like, it, it feels like a bit of a, a black hole for me. Uh, I, I will say that I think like, I think for me, I think the scene like generally works even without that context. Uh, I think it is, you know, a pretty ballsy thing for a, a white director and writer to make. So, uh, you know, I could, I see valid criticisms there uh, from that standpoint, but like, I think it is, again, I think it's pretty blunt. I think it's pretty direct. Um, and, you know, I at least kind of see value in that directness um, and I think it That's is interesting because like, I don't feel that. I mean, I guess I, yeah. I think that it works because it undermines itself. Right. Be because it like, he takes the, he takes the, uh, like the time to make another movie around it and to be like, Hey, this is a white dude's project. And like, it's a white yeah. dude's project filmed by a white dude. And like my main character in this movie got into it just because it sounded cool. And he wanted to be an actor in it. <laughs> I, I think like, you know, for me, it was, it was easy for me to like watch this section of the film and like take what I view to be pretty funny, maybe not like the most nuanced or like original, but like certainly like clear uh, criticisms of 
uh, cops and uh, kind of up, upper class, upper middle class kind of white liberals. Um, a lot of like very vague discussions around like empathy and, and whatnot, uh, specifically around the subject of race in America. And like those things are like fairly clearly critiqued in my mind. And so it's like, I'm kind of just willing to take that. I don't think it's like the end all be all necessarily. I guess I just found um, it boring just on that level. You did? I just, I found it a little obvious. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't it's, know. It's, it's a, a little, little obvious, trite. but it's like, yeah. it's good. Look, the scene where it like cuts to them outside and they're all just standing around like, oh, I got, I got, I got to call my, my aunt. She's going to. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good joke. It. Yeah. That's, yeah. it's a great joke, man. I, you know, like, uh, it's, I, I, I dug it. I don't know. I don't well, necessarily need the extra structure. That, yeah. that may exist around it uh, uh, to like, I, I just really dug it. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's direct, but, but like, but why else make the rest of the movie is what I'm saying. I think that like, there is, there's a lot more going on there than just the directness. Y- yes. There, I think if, if someone were to criticize this movie by saying it's kind of a movie with like two to, and a half parts that are, are related, but not like, maybe the most cohesively. So I think I would say that's a fair criticism that I did not impact my viewing experience and I don't care about, um, to be quite honest. Like, I I don't Mm -hmm. know. I'm willing to, uh, I, I mean, this is kind of how I feel like about a lot of this. I I feel this way about a lot of video games where I'm like, if you're doing something that I find is interesting, I am willing to, uh, kind of look past any sort of like, structural errors that that might exist well, you know what i mean video um, games are for babies and don't actually have a lot of artistic thought or merit put into yeah. them usually <laughs> yeah the ones you play bro ouch i think i fall ouch I, I think i'm falling on the Aaron side of the fence in this case where i'm willing to accept that like in the absence of the ability as a white male filmmaker in 1970 however old he was 20 30 years old whatever that he was not able to give this more nuance, that he wasn't able to give it more of that. Like that it, I think the thing Look, that Aaron reads is fun. Nuance that, is fucking over. I'm sorry I'm, to I'm, cut you off. Nuance pr- is no, overrated for cowards. Okay. I'm, I don't, some <laughs> issues don't need nuance, you know, like, I, I, well, I, I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I don't I'm think pr- he's I'm making a nuanced point. I think he's making a bigger point. That's even less nuanced in some ways. Like, I, I think that I, the, mm. like the joke of this movie is not nuanced, but I, I think it's yes. like, it's bigger than the middle third of the film. I, I, you know, I'm not going to say it's like as good as like something like Bamboozled, but like something like Spike Lee's Bamboozled is like similarly like just in your face offensive, making like very, very direct points about, you know, uh, black people specifically in like film and television and whatnot. It's like, mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes I think you just need to fucking get in your face about it. Yeah. Um, be reactive. You know? Yeah. I don't know. But also like, again, like this movie didn't was not a success this is not i don't know like i do think there is a certain i'm just saying you guys kind of sound like the guys coming out of be black baby that's all i'm that's all i'm saying Hmm. it was great i think i think uh it makes you stop and think yeah maybe (laughs) here we are aaron we're we're having the finger pointed at us by yet another white man um that's right baby that's what i'm best at i I think the (laughs) the 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 the, i guess i i could see that i think the the specific thing that that is like being made fun of uh, with with like that segment in general is like the the general concept of like you know step living in someone else's shoes and just kind of like at the end of the day being able to be like well then I take off those shoes like I'm not I'm, yeah look, being able I don't, to use those, art those to say feet. something yeah. meaningful about somebody else 
Yeah. Right. Like understanding or like empathy or like information is like the sole arbiter of, of like, uh, uh, you know, your kind of worth and like, you know, how good of a human being. Especially because it, because it gets so corrupted, right? Because De Palma is a a pervert and he wants to make money and he wants to be known. (laughs) And it's like, I think that this movie is in conversation with all of that, right? It's like, like John doesn't, John, the the De Niro character, like he doesn't, he doesn't want to make an artistic statement. He wants to be on TV. He wants to say, hi, mom. Right, like it, that. And that like, got me so good at the end everybody. of the movie, dude. Yeah, it's great. Truly. I I started full on fucking laughing in a way that it, it's been a little bit. I think when when because I like I had forgot. I was like the beginning first ten minutes. I was like, why is this movie called High Mom? When before going into it, I was like, I don't know what the fuck this movie's about. I have no idea. Okay, and when that popped up at the end, it got me real good. Got yep. me real. This, you know. Best. Sometimes it's worth having an 87 minute long movie where it's the, the well, payoff I mean, is like, I, I obviously I like this movie because De Palma's political stance is clearly like, hey, art is never going to do it. You just have to blow up the building. So I'm into True. that. I, uh, I read a, a phrase from uh, the author Philippa Snow, current author in Art Forum, reading, excuse me, writing about this movie. Um, Specifically about the movement from uh, what we talked about, what we gawked on, um, from uh, John Rubin going from selling his camera to picking up a TV instead. And that's sort of what puts him on the trail of Be Black Baby and of like getting directly involved and then in, you know becoming an individual actor rather than just as a group. Uh, she said that uh, finding that his movies lack the necessary action, his pornographic movies that he was trying to make, uh, that, as Cody mentioned, failed. Um, he seduces a girl who lives across the street in order to become the lead in his own porno. I can see that's more De Palma than De Palma in his invocation of the twin desires to see and be seen, to fuck and watch the action, to be both directing and directed. I found that a really fun read of De Palma's work in general. And it, when I apply that to this movie, it gets easier to see like the threads between De Palma's like between something like this and later on Mission Impossible, uh, later on even like parts of Carrie. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. It, it that just was sort of the, the Blyer witchness that I was getting at it which is like the the horror of the doubleness of it all of the like mm-hmm. consciousness and self-consciousness the fact that like you are never actually like only taking action you are also observing yourself taking action yeah and like there there is something about that that affects both the action and the reflection on the action in a way that makes them both sort of like never pure in, in a way that I think right. Brian De Palma is fascinated by right yeah. and like there's That's- there's something really scary there and, and interesting yeah, I think that that article was quite nice. I will also say there's a review of it uh, in Slant that I read. Again, there's like, yeah, there's like six things that. written on this fucking film. Truly, uh, and two of them are in Paris sphere. Assume there's more on like JSTOR, you know what I mean? But like uh, Eric Henderson had a review for Slant that I think is like I, I'm pretty in step with uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I would recommend. Yeah, People read. I think it's good. Well, uh, I think I will use this opportunity to start – off ramping us uh anything else before we get to junk drawer times no all right let's open the junk drawer and see what you guys you got rattling around in there aaron any final thought i know that there's like only so much content that this movie is actually made of so i don't know how much more there is to spin out but any thoughts you didn't get to in the course of the podcast um, we, we maybe did not talk quite enough about, uh, 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 Ruben's, uh, kind of exploits with, uh, with Judy. Uh, maybe I think, uh, uh, Jennifer Salt does a good job playing Judy. Um, Go for it. got a very 1970, like 
skit on like a again like a Frank Zappa album like female voice uh in a way that like Dude, she, nobody kept, sounds like that anymore. I kept wondering all. if the joke was going to be that she was 15 years old, dude. Like the entire time I was yeah. like why this character is so young. <laughs> it's crazy. It j- j- there are so many voices in this 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 movie that like were like part of a bunch of movies that sounded like this that were the foundation for like the stereotypical like uh uh like white people voice that that like black like stand up comics and like sketch writers would use like the oh hey Harold you're coming into the office on Thursday mm-hmm. you know like that sort of thing this people do not talk like that De Niro Dude, is a, definitely a, talking like that on purpose right for, oh, for the of record like, everybody in this film he's doing like a it's totally huge an affect. point Dexter white guy accent it's fantastic yeah. Yes, I, I slightly miss those kind of voices in film. I find it very entertaining. I will say that the uh, another big, big old belly laugh was the scene where he is talking with Judy in a restaurant and they're, they're you know, sharing life stories and fake life stories on his part. And they're chatting and then it cuts to them at a different restaurant. She's eating ice cream and she has an outline of ice cream that she's been mm-hmm. eating around her mouth while she's telling this sad story. Very good. Got me good. Got me good. Get you good. Uh, also, he punches a pizza in that one scene. Pretty funny. Maybe because he's so upset. Maybe thirty percent, like three times. Yeah, it's great. Thirty percent of the uh, letterbox reviews you'll read about this movie do mention or are entirely comprised uh, by the punching a pizza is pretty fucked up. Like I don't, it doesn't make. Yeah, that's the most fucked up part of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's where where it really goes off the rails. Morally, it becomes reprehensible. Uh, My uh, junk drawer thoughts are that um, the intro scene I think really caught me off guard because it is some of the funniest like filmmaking I've seen in a long time, and it's it feels. I can even De Palma spin it in my head where it's like the joke is happening on screen. It's, you know, the landlord who's overselling what's actually there. He's talking about the the mattresses, these rotting mattresses costing extra. It's a great joke. But the actually the humor of the moment is specifically only for the audience of the movie because every shot that happens is just like cut right after the joke happens in a very like weirdly modern way. I mean, every, yes, every fucking comedy TikTok good. is shot the way that like you have the yes. joke, but then like the, the scream happens and it cuts off or like the next thing happens and it cuts off this whole scene, like uh, maybe a two or three minute scene happens with that pace. And it's just so fucking funny. Every time, like I kind of want to go watch on YouTube right now. I, it's great. I really the wanted the the he, he, or blow, the... he blows through a chair. It's great. I yes. really wanted the landlord character to be a bigger character because he was so uh-huh. good, right? Was. Uh, same, same with the guy who uh, he tries to sell his porno movies to. That guy was really yeah. good in this movie. Yeah. Like, he doesn't want to shake his hand. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. really funny. Like the the like fast talking New York vibe that they have going with each other is really good. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, sim- similarly, I thought a lot of the humor in this was really good. Um, some of it was like obvious and also hilarious, which is like, I think mm-hmm. like that's kind of how I felt about the main sequence, the black sequences that like I knew exactly where it was going, but it was still somehow effective. Um, I thought that like his, his attempted seduction um, that like keeps going wrong because she's just too ready to have sex was also, it was like one joke that was way too long, but it really worked. Like I thought it was really funny. Um, Man, when, when he's like tossing her up in the air in front of the camera yeah. and like throwing her like a pizza pie. I I've never seen anybody do anything well, he, like that. It's clear. He, like, he has no idea what sex is. He has this story about how he had a girlfriend who died that he planned on reciting to like 
to like make the emotional moment right for 26 and she's just minutes. laughing her ass off while he tries to like stammer it out because she's already <laughs> trying to undress him and she's like what the fuck are you talking about uh so that was really good um shout outs to kelly she told me that the the guy who plays the white director of be black baby is uh beef from phantom of the paradise would not have beef. noticed him otherwise no, makes for a couple beef. of really great scenes when he's putting up the poster in um the elevator of his apartment and his um like neighbor has a new camera and is trying to interview him about it and he's so embarrassed about it he's just like oh yeah this is my play there's a new <laughs> lady on there uh that's that's a really good scene um obviously when he's painting himself uh oh and that's God. what that's what de niro's camera ends up seeing instead of the sex that he was trying to film really good stuff the, um, the yeah, specific thought, like he's got his body all except for like the two inches around his dick <laughs> he looks down well, did at you, it and, did you read about the uh the x rating oh is yeah, that, yeah this is yeah. sort of a junk drawer thought i guess um uh but, yeah. but like originally they they showed him they filmed him painting his dick black and that was what the x rating was and they just had to cut it out so like now it's just like it shows him like like putting the the paintbrush down there and then it just abruptly cuts away but it's like okay (laughs) it's almost funnier so like good on him but he like hesitates too yeah yeah that's the one thing he's like he he sort of like does like oh i guess like Like he knows he's being watched it's so fucking funny oh i didn't give a good on-ramp there for cody your junk or thoughts before we get to this penultimate segment Oh, I don't, I don't know if I have it. It's kind of wild that uh, Robert De Niro looks uh, better in this movie than Pacino's ever looked. That's. <laughs> I leaned over. Uh, I leaned over to Seth during this movie, and I said, "Making a strong like truth and justice scales shit." I, mean, I have a theory, I have a theory about this. In, in uh, that maybe is not. This isn't the time, but I think that mm. I think that thinking De Niro is hotter is a thing that only straight dudes think, and I think it's because they want to be De Niro. I think if you ever actually wanted to fuck either of those men, you would know that like Dog Day Afternoon Pacino is so much hotter than De Niro ever was. But hmm. that's a it's a whole theory, and I'm not the right guy to make it. Obviously, I was going to say you're I'm I was going to say. Yeah, I just I just want to rile up my audience, uh, much like uh, Brian De Palma did. Um, really makes you think, and that's all I got. And Take it away, it Jason. It makes you think. It doesn't doesn't make you think any particular thing. Just makes you think. Stop and think. It really makes you stop and think. Uh, well, thank y'all for uh, your junk drawer thoughts. I'll go ahead and close it up and open up. Uh, good grief! Good grief! Give me a gift. Uh, full disclosure. Um, so one, I was behind in gift making, and two, my pirated license for Adobe Premiere Pro uh, did get found by the. Uh, I, I wish I had a police siren by the cops by the Adobe cops and they've decided to try and uh, shut me down. I've, I've now tried to circumvent it. We'll see if I can end up making gifts, but I still want to hear what shots, if any really stuck with you guys out of this movie. Um, I know that obviously the ending one was probably mine. I, you can't avoid like the uh, fourth wall breaking constant, assignment of text on screen as seth pointed out in his uh, letterbox review and in real life is very eric andre the funniest choice they could have made for a lot of those story points uh but i don't uh know what you guys think so i went to aaron first last time go to harry first this time any shots that you would like to call out in case we're able to make them as gifts for the episode tweet i just really want to paint himself black I think that's a great shot. I think it's hilarious. I would love to see it. If you can find his, if, if you can find his dick, out a, let's just, yeah. This is uh, classic. That. We've got it going again. Hmm. Yes. Don't, this is don't the do exploding that, boys please. thing. <laughs> what is, what is I, up with mm. this censorship? Why do you, like, what are, what are we, a fucking I don't, think, po- I don't like, think that we as a, uh, podcast you know, a little, bullshit. nah, dude, Midwest we gotta get a, get a gif. 
get a gif of the the beef stick put it in the put it in the uh podcast feed that's that's um, my vote it'll be blown up to a very large 16 by 9 just on his still very pale white penis yeah uh, uh that or just the entire sequence where he's like got uh, his would-be lover and he's throwing her around like she's a pizza pie um, in fast motion. Um, I think it's like one long shot and it's framed by the window frame, so that would probably make for a pretty good gif, but like that's really good. Excellent. Um, Cody, we'll go in reverse order here. Cody, your, uh, your shot thoughts. Sure. I just had one that I took note of. Just to me, it was, I don't know, a kind of perfect at least as far as like perfect loop candidates but when he gets the camera and is just like setting it up it's like cut we're looking at him cut to an apartment people are doing shit cut back to him fiddling with the camera or just like watching through the camera they do that for like i don't know at least a couple minutes and like you could choose to to cut it off pretty much whenever you get tired of it um there's Hell yeah. yeah i don't know i just i i really love how that uh, how that sequence was cut together that sort of montage um so that'd be my that'd be my pick he gets home from eating uh, with with his date, and then he is then seen eating again behind the camera. Uh, I've, I've never felt more seen uh, by any, by a movie in my life. No, oh, yeah, uh, Aaron, your thoughts? I gotta be honest. I don't think I have one, man. I don't. I don't. I didn't prepare for it. Now that I'm thinking, I'm like, I, this. Hmm. I like this movie. This movie does not look good, and the the there's some visual stuff that I think again maybe not uh, tweetable per se. I don't think I have one. Maybe uh, the the shot of the, the to the change the title card at the end. Maybe that's, that's a, good. Should we tweet that out? It's, it's a little. It's a little obvious, thing. but I I'll be honest. I expected it from you. I'm surprised you even yeah. said there isn't one because okay. you've always right. jumped on the like kind of going. Uh, if, if we did Sleeping Beauty, be like you got to do the one with the Beauty is sleeping. If we did the Godfather, be like you got to get the one where the Godfather's in it every single fucking time. Sleeps for a lot of that film. Well, thank you for all of your wonderful suggestions. I, right? I have, I have indeed it's been a while. put the high mom shot as Aaron's suggestion. Uh, but that has been our penultimate segment uh, called Good grief. Give Me a GIF. Uh, we have one last one. Ultimate, they're calling it. Uh, 251, uh, episode 251. Ultimate segment of episode 251, which uh, Harry traditionally helps me ring in. Yes, thank you, Jason. And thank you, Cody, for the next segment that we like to call... <gasps> Cody's noties. Uh, don't thank me just yet as I unmute and uh, drag race. Wow. Is that literally so many motorcycles just drove past Whoa. my window? Hell's that angels, was awesome. They're, they're celebrating, dude. It's Cody's yeah, noties still, time. They should be shooting yeah. guns and shit. Yeah, they, they should be. Um, uh, so thank you to you and thank you to them. That uh, introduction filmed me when I was shirtless and unaware. Uh, this movie is something of a Mad Libs, and so I felt it somewhat appropriate to bring back uh, another installment of Trilibs, which, for those unaware, is our attempt at reimagining the world-famous game, question mark, known as Mad Libs, where you take a story that has some blanks that need to be filled in with various parts of speech. You fill them in with words, but the people filling in those blanks don't necessarily know what the story's about, and so you usually get a few laughs at the at the final resulting story that comes about. And so I've got uh, a little yarn somewhat inspired by the movie that we just finished talking about, and so I will ask y'all for your please, assistance. Please, 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 please. Yes. I'm just waiting on the name. I'm waiting on the name drop. I have like 50 bucks oh, on this. 
No, I never. I, well, it's, that'll that'll come afterwards. Um, we've got to fill oh. in the story first, and then huh. yes. And, so that was. Weird. I think you were saying, please, please, <laughs> please, don't talk too much about the B Black baby stuff. Um, which uh, we don't <laughs> really get into. Omit the, that no, I, from this trilibs. I, I I sensitively tiptoed around that. Seems like uh, something that wouldn't go great for filling in the blanks type of shit. <laughs> um, but uh, in the uh, alphabetical by first name order of Aaron, Harry, and Jason, I will ask y'all for your assistance. And so kicking things off with Aaron Grossman, um, you can censor his last name uh, if you want to, um, even though we say it all the time. Maybe that'd be a fun bit. Hi, mom is all about bits. Uh, but this is certainly not a bit. This is very serious. Aaron, from you, I need a name. Uh, oh, that's, you know, he caught me off guard here. Um, Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. All righty. Always the um, first name on my mind. Big man upstairs. That's right. Always upstairs, never downstairs. And don't read into that statement more than you need to. Harry, over to you. Could I please get an adjective? Slippery. Ooh. Jesus, the slippery man upstairs. How did you know that that's what this is going to be about? There's not uh, there's not a whole lot more slippery than escaping from death. What do you think about <laughs> it? That's very true. Um, I got no segue. Jason, uh, from you, can I get a type of appliance? Mm, I'm going to go with an air fryer. I knew he was going to fucking say air fryer. I had a whole, like, I was really? like, you millennial fucking, oh, I'd like avocado toast for Aaron, mine. you went on my, for like a, a second there. Were you going to defend me or support me in I, any way? No, nah, it's, no, nah, it's good. Okay. Just, like, just checking. Just, just as long as you don't on. say toaster, because don't then. Don't call me out for undoing my mic, motherfucker. <laughs> I will speak through my mic if I want. How dare you? <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, though, fellas, avocado toast, pretty good. It's just legit. Float that out there. Um, what oh, else yeah. is legit? Uh, Aaron and whatever animal he decides to put forth Ooh. as the next point to be filled. Uh, let's get a wombat. Nice. Classic wombat. All right. Thank you very much. Back over to Harry. Harry, from you, can I get a type of occupation or Ooh. job? I like yeah. how, how much faster Aaron was with wombat than he was with Jesus. <laughs> kind of, kind of makes you think. Well, um, I'm going to go with a glass blower, Cody. A glass blower. A glass blower. Excellent. Uh, All righty. And back over in a similar vein, Jason. um, What was I? A type of electronic? Sure. So not necessarily an Hmm. appliance. Um, Something electronic, Hmm. to be certain. Uh, A potato peeler. Does that count? Specify electric. (laughs) Electric potato potato peeler. peeler. Thank you. There you go. Yeah, there you go. That's, yeah, why not? I'll add that in. Excellent. We are moving right along. Um, now we're still in the first couple sentences. Uh, over to Aaron. Uh, a verb, please. Uh, jump. Excellent. What a good verb. And can Harry follow that up with, uh, I was going to say a good color, but that is kind of a loaded phrase. So Harry... Give me a color, if you would. Burgundy. Burgundy. That is a pretty good color. 
burgundy. Some colors uh, are better. Jason, can I get from you the name of a fictional work? Uh, of just any media? Of any media. The name of a fictional work. Uh, the framing is kind of throwing me off, but can I say the Necronomicon? You can. Okay. Necronom- yeah. Necronomicon. Yeah, I think I sounded that out appropriately. A lot of consonants in that. Um, I like that you you ha- interpreted that if I if I may, Jason, as like a fictional work that itself is extant in fiction. That is exactly where I was going with it. I pulled it from like obviously it. Evil Dead, but I wasn't sure. Like, I you want me to just because make a you could have just story? said Evil Dead, which is itself a fictional property, but you wanted a property that was inside of you were within, nesting. Yes, sure, very good. Within the thing, what is the thing within the thing? Uh, uh, this game is so many you, layers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh Aaron, a type of Halloween costume. Sorry, what what sorry, what was the spe- exact specific prompt for Jason that was given? Uh title of a fictional work, something about that, something that like is that. A, that, is a, that is a that is a non-fictional bit? work in a fictional setting. Okay, so I was The Necronomicon was is right. true in the universe of HP Lovecraft and so that that is that is not a wrong? fictional work. Tale of Two Cities is a fictional work. That is a non-fictional work that doesn't I've, exist. I've already, I've already so got minute, it. Like, I'm what, fucking sick right now. What do you guys like, understand? Hang on. What if yeah. like Superman, though? What if he was reading Tale of Two Cities? Would that render uh, Jason's like That is a fictional of- work in a fictional <laughs> setting that actually does exist. But that's but not... Re- look, that's not, look the, the Necronomicon, that shit's true. There's big fucking squid guys and shit. What are you talking about? The worlds aren't fictional to the point. characters that are in those worlds. Th- if things I, if of the walk that should crawl, Jason. If, if, Sorry, continue. <laughs> if I said the Necronomicon, but specifically not the one that they read in Evil Dead and Army of Darkness, just the one that exists this, in our world. There this, is it, technically it a book the called the Necronomicon that is a collection of H.P. Lovecraft short stories that uh, that are that's, all That's the one he was I referring will, to. So, We've brought up another oh, question off. because it's oh, a fuck. real you're collection th- of fictional stories. You guys fucking sick of Yeah. We you have, do that again, Jason. You put a little bit more ass, thin ice okay. on top of thin ice. <laughs> Thank you, Cody. Uh, Aaron, Cody, a type, of Halloween, uh, type, okay. type of Halloween costume. Oh, uh, just big spooky ghost. <laughs> if, if we do post a clip from the show, can it be that like minute, 50 second long sequence about fictional and non-fictional work? Works yes. And like, oh, yes. And uh, big spooky ghosts. Thank you. Um. I genuinely good, great That'd stuff. That'd be a good always, bit, yeah. gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of big, Harry Mackin, can I get a number from you? Uh, two. Nice. I was gonna say it doesn't have to be a big number. Just uh, you know. Yeah, I zagged on you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Harry, larger than life, Mackin. Um, it's a lengthy nickname, but it's what we call you. Uh, speaking, can I segue this way? Speaking of names, yes, I can. Jason, can I get a name from you? Byron. Did I hear Byron? You heard Byron. Byron. Outstanding, Jason. Very good. Thank you. You'll never believe what I almost chose. Uh, another small town in Minnesota, Chatfield, potentially. Mm. Um, my, my southeastern Minnesota is showing. Uh, over to Aaron, can I get an emotion from you? And then after that, can you say an emotion for the purposes of the game? I have to say that every <laughs> time. 
uh, crushing sadness. <laughs> they didn't have to be the same. <laughs> crushing. It's, he gave you a free adjective, too. Yeah, that's I, I included it all. This is going to be one zesty rundown. Um, speaking of zesty, Harry Mackin, <laughs> can I get a food from you? Um, oh, man. Like a cheese quesadilla. A big cheese quesadilla. Do you want it to be a big cheese quesadilla or just a cheese quesadilla? Please. Big slimy cheese quesadilla. Please include slimy. Uh, You're going too far. You're going too far. I'm just. Or is he not going far enough? That's right. Slimy cheese quesadilla. Oh, wet and oily. Jesus. Uh, Jesus was already already said. Yeah, Uh, IP. That's in a fictional work. It, yeah, uh, incorporated. Jason, from you, can I please get the name of a previous Trilove guest? Let's go with Ben Savard. Nice. Hmm. Will Ben appreciate having his name in the story, given the context of his character? Uh, don't we'll find ben out in a few minutes. Uh, no promises. Uh, Aaron, from you, can I please get a body part? Figuratively. Uh, nose. Nose. All right, we're down to our last couple here. Uh, Harry, a type of business, if you please. Ooh, man. Limited Liability Corporation. All right, motherfucker. Uh, and the last field that needs to be filled in goes to Jason. Jason, from you, can I please get the name of a movie. Ah, I could get used to this. Um, Is that a movie? Let's go with The Handmaiden. That's just a good movie. No particular reason. Good fall watch. Good fall time watch. Might yeah. be my favorite of his. I really it's, like that movie. It's real high up there. Yeah. It's in my top couple. Hmm. Oh, hmm. I'll, I'll muse on this a little bit more later. But for now, I, I did a, a scan. It looks like we got to everything. Thank you very much for your input. Uh, hard to fit this movie into one of the goofy like genre categories or subgenre, genre, micro genre categories I usually do for these. Uh, so will Jason get $50? We'll find out. Uh, without further ado, this is Trilibs colon mommy. Hmm. Not the face I, of somebody I don't, just I don't won get the, I don't get the 50 bucks. I was going to say, try mom. But <laughs> that has more troubling implications, I think, than just mommies. Yeah, that's, yeah. We don't want to get too, oh, uh, too transgressive I, on this I was episode. muted, but I just made the laugh that Salacious Crumb makes in Return of the Jedi. So <laughs> just, okay. maybe You're we on. could put that in there, <laughs> Jason. Oh, you could just give us a clean read here before we jump into the story. Do you want to? <laughs> Oh, I was on mute again. Sorry. That I only had two in me. I, I can't do it again. Oh, what a huge bummer. All right. Let's, let's take it from the top. <clears throat> Once upon a time, Jesus moved into a new apartment. The furniture was slippery and the air fryer had, wom- uh, had wombat poop in it, but it was home. Jesus needed to make some money, and so they decided to become a glass blower. They bought an electric potato peeler, and soon they were jumping their neighbors without their knowledge. Jesus learned a lot about what their neighbors got up to. One apartment's tenant painted their skin burgundy in honor of their new play adaptation of the Necronomicon. See, it still worked. Uh, One apartment apartment housed a couple that liked making love to each other while dressed as big spooky ghosts. And yet another apartment contained two roommates, one of whom seemed as if they wanted to find someone special. 
And so Jesus made their way to their apartment, knocked on their door, and said hello. The lonely roommate was named Byron. And they were all too crushingly sad to go out on a date with Jesus. They went out for big, slimy cheese quesadillas and talked about their lives. Jesus uh, exaggerated some parts in the hopes of winning over Byron. This led to them bonding over a shared ex named Ben Savard, who had broken both of their noses. Jesus' fake fling with Byron grew into real love, and the two of them moved in together, though Jesus had grown restless. They considered blowing up a limited liability corporation building in order to effect change, but they decided to instead work out their feelings with the help of a movie. As Jesus and Byron watched The Handmaiden together, they pondered all the ways in which life had unexpectedly brought them joy. The end. I like the idea of Jesus exaggerating on a date. He was like, bro, I was dead for four days. I was dead for <laughs> almost five days. Cut him off. <laughs> You're done, pal. Thank you, Cody, uh, for another a wonderful edition of Tri-Libs. Uh, and, and as always, wonderful reading. I think I'm going to find a way to uh, drama, uh, dra- dramatize, dramatize uh, that a little bit more. I'm getting my Irving Goffman fucked up. But I'm, in editing, uh, you'll hear, hear the um, results. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I did, in fact, because of Zencaster's wonderful recording technology, I did get uh, Harry's individual salacious crumb laugh. You'll hear that edited. I, I just want to make sure that it's audible and stereo sound for everybody. Uh, but you'll hear that on the other end. Um, listener and you'll also hear more episodes from us if you uh, follow us on whatever podcast platform you listen to listener uh you'll maybe read more from us if you follow us on twitter uh, at trylove podcast uh check out trylon.org for their showings calendar there's a lot of cool stuff the larry fishburn series starts i believe as of recording tonight um with deep cover that's a really fucking good movie i found uh and uh, a lot of other stuff stuff from uh, lawrence fishburn's early career before the, the 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 larry before lawrence um i don't know they i think they just call it larry fishburn feels like a missed opportunity but anything else sort of diminutizes the man's uh provenance i think uh, john so. said that in one of his or in his early movies he's credited as larry fishburn he is indeed uh which so I think eventually is he is transitioned yeah yes he's transitioned uh, but you can check it out uh, at Trilon.org and a lot of other cool ways to support the Trilon. I walked away. It's stuck right now to my pack on uh, that I wear to every movie, uh, but I walked away with a fun little uh, knob jingle thingy that Cody gave me from a new uh, – uh, it's like a little coin-operated gajinka type machine. Not gajinka. That's – what is that? Um, yeah, pachinko-type machine. Uh, th- I think it's from uh, Hands Off the Loot, a movie that we saw years ago at the Trilon in a secret screening. I don't terrible remember exactly. <laughs> really uh, terrible movie. Not, not, Solid not flick. Not, not, Solid not flick. I, I found it. Solid um, flick. It was bad. You guys Aaron, don't appreciate was, the French. I'll accept. I'll accept because Aaron was actually uh, in town. He was actually in Minneapolis for this podcast all about Minneapolis uh, for that one showing. Uh, but anyway. I think I just a, lived in Minneapolis at the time. Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty that, sure that's true. You're a bit <laughs> yeah, of it. But that, that counts uh, yeah. as being in town. Yeah. Check it out at trialand.org. Uh, and hey, stop by the theater if, you, uh, if you've if you got time. Tickets are uh, affordable. Movies are great. Check it out. You might even see us there. Uh, for right now, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. I've been Harry Mackin. Hey, thanks, Cody, for Trilibs. That was really great. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake or at Taco Bell because I'm definitely going to get a big slimy cheese quesadilla right after this. My name is Aaron. Check me out on LinkedIn. You know, need to grow my network, professional recommendations, mm-hmm. all that. Check me out on LinkedIn. Send me a message. Uh, I'm going to endorse you, know, you we'll, for we'll, podcasting, motherfucker. Please <laughs> ruin do your not career. do that. That would <laughs> negatively impact my do career. That. Do that do for not me. Do that. 
But if you want to, you know, if you want to say that I'm good at um, HTML, you know, go ahead. See what happens. Mike Etiquette, this guy, one there of the best. <laughs> Pooping right before the podcast every <laughs> single week. I'll endorse him for that. I, I poop a lot more work, buddy. It's you, okay. All right. One out of ten of your skills matches this job profile. I wonder which one. Will you shut that door? Christ, leave the coffee and corned beef on the table. What the hell are you... I don't want any magazines, kid. Do you mind? What you're disturbing here, huh? What do you think you are, in your own house? Look at that. Is that gorgeous? You see that cleavage, huh? Where are you going to get that? You don't get that in a Fellini film. You get that in a Banner film. Now, this is your public. You understand? These guys come from every walk of life. Middle class, rich, poor. Don't pay any attention. I, I shouldn't even tell you what goes on in there. You come into one of these theaters, you do not go into the men's room. You understand? You got that straight? That's one of the laws. Is that art? Don't pay any attention. A pervert. Leave him alone. Who knows where he's been? She looks inhibited, right? Huh? You know why she looks in it? She hasn't had the right direction. She has not been told who she is in this film. That girl does not want to screw anybody. She wants to screw the man of her life. So who do they put her in with, huh? Some weirdo with gold hair. Yeah, that's funny, huh? What's going to happen when her mother sees that picture? Know what I mean? I mean, kids kids should grow up with a feeling of beauty about their bodies, right? I mean, my little boy, my six-year-old boy, walks around with a towel around him all the time. I mean, why is that, huh? I don't see my daughter do doing that. <laughs> oh, that's all right. He means well. This man is obviously somebody who needs a movie, but not this movie. If it were this movie, he wouldn't be doing this to me. He wouldn't be putting his hands on my balls. Mm-hmm.